particularly beautiful scene towards the end of the Gospel of uh, John that uh, he records. Uh, it's the morning of the resurrection, and Mary Magdalene is uh, at the graveside, and she sees someone. It's Jesus. She just doesn't know that it's him. She thinks that uh, it's the gardener, right? And uh, the Holy Spirit often uses the Apostle John as he writes uh, his gospel to, to make callbacks uh, to the Old Testament and the book of Genesis in particular. And I think uh, the callback there is, uh, is to ask this question. Is Mary standing at a grave or is she standing in a garden, right? And I want to begin with that picture uh, because we've gathered together today to worship King Jesus who turns the grave into a, a garden. Uh, you might remember Adam was entrusted to keep the garden. Uh, Adam turned the garden into the grave, right? Uh, uh, he, he, in his sinful rebellion against God, took this beautiful garden and turned it into a place of death. The greater Adam is Jesus, and he has arrived, and he transforms that grave into um, a garden. One of the principles we're going to learn today is, uh, uh, is it a garden or is it a grave? Well, every garden uh, is a place where some things have to die in order that other things could live. I'm, I'm grateful that you're here, and I really believe God is going to use uh, our study in Mark 8 for our great good. I want to do something a little bit different uh, for this worship service, and I actually want to go in and read uh, the passage of Scripture that we're going to study together a little bit later on. It's going to be Mark chapter 8. Uh, and this morning and for the next uh, several Sundays, Lord willing, uh, we're going to study Mark 8, verses 22 through 38. There's so much here uh, that's well worth our careful consideration, much more than we'll be able to cover on one uh, Sunday. Uh, and so we'll begin uh, looking at these verses together. I am going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word in Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 38. They came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. He sent him home, saying, Do not even enter the village. When Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, uh, on the way he asked the disciples, Who do you say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. He asked him, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He called to him the crowd and with his disciples said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
For whoever would lose his life, I'm sorry, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Let's pray together. Father, I pray from your word that you'd bring life. We believe that the Spirit of God uses the word of God to bring transformation to the willing heart. So I'm asking at the front of our service that that we would have a heart, a a spirit of willingness, a teachability, um, and that you would be using Mark 8 in a deep way among many of us in these days. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
praise the King together. Mark 8 is, of course, where we will be. And a start in line with, again, this confession, this belief, this hope that the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to bring transformation to a willing heart. What I'm so thankful about the Lord Jesus Christ is He doesn't bring a tweak to our lives. He brings transformation. Uh, The Puritans have a saying, the same sun that melts the snow hardens the clay. Same sun, different effect, and, and, and that was an allusion to what the Scripture does. The Scripture either brings uh, melting, so to speak, a, a work of power and transformation, uh, but the same Scripture can beat against a hard heart and have no effect. My hope for you is that your life is being transformed by the goodness and the grace of God. Unfortunately, it's possible to regularly read the Word, uh, study the Word, hear preaching about the Word, and it really have no effect on your life. The the best uh, example of that, or a clear example of that, from the Scriptures are the Pharisees. Uh, And we'll talk a little bit about them uh, this morning. But but the same Word, the same Word can come to another life and bring transformation. So I'm hopeful that you've got your Bible right there in front of you, And as you have your Bible open, I'm going to ask you to bring a little something uh, with you to this study. I want to begin by asking you today, are you living the life that Jesus has offered to you? Uh, Jesus says in John 10, I've come that you'd have life. I mean, you'd really be able to live. Unfortunately, some people think about following God as if it's like a diet, something we have to do, and it's really good for us. But if truth be told, we would prefer to do something else. Now, if that's true, that's not really the life God has given us in Christ Jesus. A life where there is forgiveness and there is flourishing. That God is for you, not against you. So I'm going to ask you to bring something to this study. uh, I'm going to ask you to bring a little bit of what Jacob had in him when he... Uh, clung to the Lord and said, I'm not going to let go until you bless me. Or have a little bit of Moses in you that says, if you're not going with us, Exodus 33, if your presence isn't going with us, don't lead us up from here. I'm going to ask you to have a little bit of Ruth in you who said, I'm leaving Moab and I'm leaving it behind for good. I'm going to ask you to bring to our brief study this morning, a little bit of the psalmist who said, better is one day in your courts than a thousand days elsewhere. I've spent the thousand days elsewhere, have you? And I can assure you, in my experience, the psalmist is exactly right. I don't want to spend a thousand elsewhere. I don't want to spend a single day elsewhere. I believe the time that has passed in my life is sufficient for loving uh, the world. I'm going to go after the one who turns our mourning into dancing, the one who brings beauty from ashes. Yes, the one who takes the grave and makes it a flourishing garden. I want to have a little bit of the prodigal son in me who says, I've had enough of the far country and I'm going home. A little bit of Paul in me says, I'm going to count all things loss next to the surpassing greatness. I want a willing heart so that the Spirit of God can use this word 
to bring needed transformation to my life. Mark 8 right here, we've already read, has a miracle in two parts. It's the only time in the Gospels where a miracle takes place like this. I mean, we've been studying through Mark, and, and usually the word that's used when Jesus performs a miracle is the word immediately, right? Immediately the leprosy left him. Immediately the man with the withered hand stretches out, and immediately, immediately. But here, it happens not immediately, but sort of there's a progression to it. At first, it's like his eyes have improved, but he can't really see. He's kind of got blurry vision. He says, uh, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And I, th- I want you to know that there's an intentionality about how the scripture is arranged with these scenes, this miracle of seeing that's then followed by this discussion with Peter and who is he and you're the Christ and then get behind me Satan and then Jesus gives this full explanation of what it really means to follow him so the the miracle illustrates the teaching in other words uh, do you see clearly looks like men are walking around like trees who am I you're the Christ but then it's demonstrated that Peter doesn't really know what that means And so then Jesus explains what it really means that he is the Christ and what the implications of that fact are for us. And this comes in line with everything we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark. These questions, do you have eyes but don't see? Do you have ears but you don't understand? Do you still not yet understand? That's the questions that Jesus had asked in the previous uh, verses. So as we study here in particular, I want to spend... Uh, prayer and thought in Mark 8, 34 to 38, Mark 8, 34 to 38, because it's here that Jesus gives the equivalent of what it means to see clearly with the eyes of your heart. To use the miracle as an illustration, I I think most people are in one of three uh, places when it comes to Jesus. Either they're completely blind right? No interest, no sight, no devotion, no desire, nothing. Or they can kind of see. We'll talk about that in a moment. Or you can really see. I mean, he is your, he is your life. Well, uh, here we find that Jesus does something that is a little perplexing, but it's true to form. Anytime, anytime Jesus talks to a crowd he speaks to them in a way that's likely to cause them to leave. Isn't that a little bit confusing? I mean, he's just had the large feeding again. You remember in the feeding of the 5,000, particularly you can go read this in John 6, after he feeds the 5,000, he's never more popular, and they try to make him king by force, and then Jesus gives some clear, clear teaching about who he really is, and that leads to many of those who were following him to leave from him. And then he does it right here again, saying, hey, if you're really going to come after me, you have to deny yourself and follow me uh, and, or take up your cross and follow me. Jesus never, ever, ever tries to talk people into following him for the wrong reasons. In fact, as we read through the Gospels, what we actually find is that he talks people 
out of following him when they come after him for the wrong reasons. What I appreciate and respect so much about Jesus is he never sugarcoats what it means to really follow him. He's always upfront about the costs and the demands. It's never in the fine print. It's never to be discovered later, right? He's not into false advertisement. He says very clearly, I mean, listen to the scripture. He says this plainly about he's going to Jerusalem to be killed. He says it clearly. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He never, ever, ever makes it out that following him is comfortable or convenient. Well, think about it this way. I have uh, three precious uh, daughters who fill my life up with light and laughter and a life. Uh, A day may come far in the future where they want to get married. And when that day comes and that man comes to speak to me, and by the way, that man better come speak to me. When he does, what do you think I'm going to say? What do you think I'm going to ask him? If he wants to marry my daughter, I'm going to ask him if he's really ready to get married. Are you really ready to sacrifice and give? Are you really ready to forsake all others? Now, would we ever think that the standards are lower when it comes to following Christ. It's in essence what Jesus is saying to the crowds as they come to him for all sorts of reasons. They've got deep needs, but part of their needs is they don't know the deepest needs they really have. It's not for bread. It's for the bread of life, as Christ explains. Well, Jesus says here, uh, in Mark eight thirty eight, that he's coming back for his bride. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. So Jesus is saying, if you're going to come after me, you must forsake all others. So have you forsaken all others? Have you denied yourself I mean, we live in a generation where uh, the anthem of our day is you don't deny yourself anything. Jesus says to follow him, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. So I ask you again, have you done that? Have you forsaken all others in order to pursue Christ? I'm not asking if you go to church. I'm not asking if you regularly stream a worship service. I'm not asking if your parents or grandparents are Christians. I'm not asking if you listen to his radio more than 99.9. I'm not asking if you've ever walked down the aisle of a church. I'm not asking if you've ever raised your hand during a worship service. I'm not asking if your name is on the membership role of a church. I'm not asking if you've prayed a prayer after somebody as they are praying. I'm asking you, If you've forsaken all others, 
in order to pursue and love the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm asking you, not do you sort of see, I'm asking you if you see everything clearly. Who do you say I am is the question that Jesus asked. And Peter, Peter answered, you are the Christ. And then it's not much later that Jesus says to the same man, Peter, he says, get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I want you to see clearly that Jesus is giving a warning that there's a way to think of him as the Christ that really is to set the mind on the things of man. And when Jesus calls Peter Satan, Peter is not sort of standing in front of a witch's brew, stirring it, making incantations with his head turning around 360 degrees. He calls him Satan when Peter has put his arm around Jesus and drawn close, he thinks, to Jesus. So that tells us some really important things. That it's satanic to step near Jesus, but not submit to Jesus. It's satanic to listen to him, but not obey him. To come after him, but not deny yourself and take up your own cross. It's satanic to shrink Jesus down so that he can fit into your life. To take the edge off his demands and repurpose his mission in the world so it accommodates your preferences and to say, I see men who look like trees walking while claiming you can see clearly. Do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? Do you not yet understand? Jesus says that he's going to suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, be killed, and on the third day, rise again. So he's telling them very clearly, Jesus Christ is all in in saving you. The only response that's appropriate is that you would therefore be all in in being saved. So in your life, how you spend your time and what you value, what you worship, is it worthy of the one who's been crucified for you? Or are you, and this is very common, this is a temptation for all of us, really seeking to sort of find a little place for Jesus in life that's comfortable and convenient. I would put it this way, and maybe it's a way that we can understand today. And that crowd, as Jesus is teaching, there were a lot of fans of Jesus, but very few followers of Jesus. So just want to use that as an illustration. Um, this concept that Jesus had a lot of fans, but he didn't have a lot of followers. That's true then, and I believe it's true now. So what do we mean by that? Well, an illustration, and I've used an illustration similar to this before. Uh, last year, in fact, about this time last year, my family went to 
of Boston, and I am a fan of the Boston Red Sox. I mean, I got my hat here, got my Boston Red Sox hat, put it on. I'm a fan of the Red Sox. And so we went up to Boston, and I took my family, took my children, and we went to Fenway Park, and there I was in the crowd cheering on my team. I mean, I've got a lot, I mean, I've worn a Boston Red Sox hat for years. When I was a child, about the age of seven, my first Little League team was the Red Sox, and that's just, that's what led me to kind of adopt them as my team. I've got a lot of Red Sox shirts. I've spent a lot of time watching the Red Sox play over the years. I've cheered for Roger Clemens and did that until he, of course, left the Red Sox and pitched for some other teams. And I've cheered for Pedro Martinez and Nomar Garciaparra and Minnie Rivera's and David Ortiz and Chris Sale and Mookie Betts. I mean, we can go on and on. We won't, but I could, but we won't. I am a big fan of the Red Sox. And uh, my children cheer now for the Red Sox. But here's the obvious truth about being a fan of the Red Sox. I've never once been in a single game. Never broken a sweat, never made a play, never stolen a base, never got a hit, never made a pitch, never caught a fly ball, never done one moment of participation in the games. There are a lot of things I do as a fan. I cheer for them. I boo against the Yankees because that's their rival. And I know a lot about these players, Mookie Betts and David Ortiz and their jersey numbers and their stats. I just don't happen to actually know them. And we see in our, in our own day right now uh, how actually at the end of the day in some ways unimportant fans are because as the professional leagues and college athletics make plans to return, they need the players but they're all discussing how they might play without fans in attendance. See, what's becoming clear in Mark 8 is that Jesus has a lot of fans, but not a lot of followers. Fans that know about him, know that he can feed them, for example, but very few followers who will take up the cross and follow him. A lot of fans who are willing to tell him what he should do. I mean, there have been many times I've watched a Red Sox game and I give my unasked for advice, really just talking to the television as if someone could hear me. Plenty of fans who will tell him what he should do, but very few followers who are really listening to him tell them what he is going to do. I do want you to know there is so much more joy in life in being a follower of Jesus than in being a fan of Jesus. Because here's the real danger. This is a real danger. Most fans think they're followers. Most fans have concluded in their hearts that they are followers because they can kind of see and they point to t-shirts and magnets and attendance and what they cheer for and what they root against but if you're unable to say what it's ever really cost you to follow Jesus this is the denial that I'm making this is how I've forsaken the world this is what I don't know about Jesus but this is how I know Jesus I know the crucified king 
the Christ who bore my sin on the cross, you may see kind of with some blurred vision, but do you see everything clearly? You know, I think what would be really helpful is if we consider some specific examples from the Gospels where it's demonstrated that here's a fan of Jesus, but not really a follower of Jesus. And the good news is that we're going to be able to do that. And I'm going to give one example of that very thing right now. We'll find a a fan who's not a follower, at least initially as we read about him in John chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn there to John chapter 3. And this first example, and we'll see more in the upcoming weeks as we study uh, together what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. This first example is a man who is revered in his own day. I mean, he's respected. Uh, He is the most respected man in Jerusalem in, uh, in many ways at the time. And of course, his name is Nicodemus. We read about him in John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so we see in these uh, verses that Nicodemus respects Jesus, he admires Jesus, he's interested in Jesus, he's impressed with Jesus. He doesn't come to Jesus with an antagonistic attitude. I mean, Nicodemus is a Pharisee, but he's not speaking to Jesus like most of the Pharisees that we see in the Gospels. He's not hostile. Uh, In fact, he comes uh, and he's very polite, isn't he? But we also learn from these verses something else, and that's that he comes to Jesus and he does so at night. Now, it may be that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night because he works all day and that's the first opportunity that he has, but I tend to think that he comes to Jesus at night for another reason, and that reason is that he comes to Jesus at night because he doesn't want anybody to see him as he comes to Jesus. I mean, we know Jesus was certainly accessible in the daytime, right? But to come to Jesus in the daytime would mean that Nicodemus would have to be seen coming to Jesus. And that there would likely have been an audience of other people around who would know who Nicodemus is. And Nicodemus just couldn't quite bring himself to do that. I want you to know for Jesus to come to you, it costs him much. You know, the unfortunate dynamic at play here in John 3, as you can kind of see it implied, is that Nicodemus is this well-respected man, and here's this teacher from this nowhere place called Nazareth, just a carpenter's son, right? And, And Nicodemus is... It kind of coming to Jesus. And on one hand, uh, Jesus in John 3 is that early point of his ministry. I mean, to get the stamp of approval, to get sort of a statement of uh, uh, approval from Nicodemus would really help his ministry, right? If, if Jesus were just a lowly carpenter from Nazareth. But Jesus isn't just that. He's the king. And, and the irony here is, is that Nicodemus thinks that he is sort of taking... Um, Uh, humility on to come to Jesus, but you think about the humility that Jesus has taken on to come to us. 
have this mind in you which is in Christ Jesus, who though being in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. The name Jesus, Savior, is greater than the name Nicodemus. Nicodemus, his very name is significant. It's, it's, it, it's made up of two Greek words, Nike, victory, like your Nike tennis shoes, victory, Demas, of, of the people, like democracy is government of the people or demographics information about people. So his name is victory of the people, or a way we might say it is the people's champion. I mean, Nicodemus represents the best human beings can be. And he steps in the ring. Uh, uh, well, I say step in the ring in a way he does. He steps in the room to Jesus. And here is what Jesus says to him. It is very important that you hear what Jesus says to Nicodemus. Nicodemus says his statement, believe you must come from God. Nobody can do what you do unless he comes from God. And Jesus looked at him and said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man is born again, he cannot what? What does it say? He cannot, he cannot see. He cannot see. He cannot see. Nicodemus, everybody is looking at you to be their guide and you are blind. You can't see. Nicodemus has a powerful position. In fact, Jesus in John 3 calls him the teacher of Israel. And I think we get a hint. When Jesus said, a man, if he's going to come after me, a person who's going to come after me must deny himself. I think we get an idea of what Nicodemus would have to deny if he were to follow Jesus in the daytime, so to speak. In John chapter 7 I want to read in a, a little bit of an extended passage from you, but remember as we read the Word of God, as the Word of God is sharp and it's helpful and it's words of life. John 7, verse 37, on that day, last day of the feast, a great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this is said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as the Spirit had not yet been given, for as yet the Spirit had not yet given, but Jesus, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Stumbling over my words because I'm eager for you to see the Nicodemus, uh, what he needs to deny. It says, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but others, but no one, sorry, laid their hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them. Now notice, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, here he is, who had gone to him before. And who was one of them said to them, 
Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see. No prophet arises from Galilee. You see it, don't you? See, when we talk about that in order to follow Jesus, you have to forsake all others, that includes, and often this is the toughest thing to do, that includes you have to forsake yourself. And this is what Nicodemus is wrestling with. We see in John 3, now here in John 7, what is he wrestling with? He's really having a hard time denying in himself a strong desire to be thought of with respect and esteem and admiration. They, they kind of poke at him in the very way that he fears. Are you also from Galilee? What are they saying? Are you also uneducated? Are you also so uh, uh, unrefined, Nicodemus? Are you not intelligent? Right? That's what they're implying. In a moment, it is a moment where he can deny himself, deny his desire, and, uh, and want to be respected and well thought of and appreciated and esteemed. I think this is why a lot of people, if they come to Jesus at all, they try to come to him at darkness. They want to approach Jesus without anybody ever putting on them reproach. And Jesus himself says, that's not possible. Too often in the American church, we are in danger of affirming fans that they are followers. Too often, someone like Nicodemus, if they were so respected and articulate, would very quickly be put in positions of leadership. Nicodemus came to Jesus, I think, because deep down, he knew something in his life was not right. An invitation like everyone who thirsts can come to me and I'll make his heart a, a spring of water. Nicodemus heard things like that and said, my heart is dry. But he also in his heart hungered for approval and respect. The crucified life of following Jesus will never, ever, ever be esteemed respected or applauded by the world around you. Nicodemus here is in danger of exactly what Jesus warns about in Mark 8. What does it profit to gain the whole world? Well, Nicodemus's world, he's gained it. But Nicodemus, in his heart, knows I'm about to forfeit my life. What Jesus demonstrates 
is that he can always do more with just a handful of followers than he will ever do through thousands and thousands and thousands and large crowds of fans. I don't have a nice, smooth, or easy conclusion for this morning's sermon. We're going to be spending a lot more time in Mark chapter 8 in the weeks to come, and we're going to focus on what these words of Jesus really mean, to deny yourself, follow me, lose your life. And we're going to do so really trusting that the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to bring transformation to a willing heart. I do want to conclude our study for this morning by reading to you something that Peter wrote towards the end of his life. Now, this isn't the Peter of Mark chapter 8 writing. And aren't you thankful? I'm so thankful. Let's put the picture, the miracle together that uh, Jesus is willing to keep working in our lives until we see clearly. So here is Peter. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What is Peter saying? He's saying, I can see everything clearly. Can you? Can you? Father, I pray for my church as we listen to the King, Jesus, from Mark chapter 8. It is a strong temptation for us to confuse being a fan of Jesus for being a submitted follower of Jesus. The King of Glory is coming back for his bride. His bride are those who've forsaken all others, who've denied themselves, taken up their cross, and followed. Speak to us the truth.